On this Tuesday morning, we welcome you to Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you alongside Samuel G. Brooks. Thanks Good for morning. tuning in on the on the heels of uh, at least in our neck of the woods, the family day long weekend. Uh, it was uh, your family's first family day long weekend with a, with a newborn in the mix, Uncle Sam. Uh, That's as correct. Of, uh, you, you've only been Uncle Sam for for just a, for but a few days. But a few days. That's correct. Did it change your perspective on family day? Um, you know, I mean, I haven't met her yet, so it's still one of those things where I'm, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm pacing my time. It's like, yeah. it's all still new right now. Actually, uh, some, some afternoon this week, I'm probably going to go over there and finally get to meet my new niece. Do I'm the sort of, uh, do the like through the glass thing or yeah, see, exactly. see her on, see her on the front porch, the doorstep kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. I think we're uh, going to do like a doorstep meeting. Very exciting stuff. Uh, it's an exciting day for all of us here at Real Talk. As a matter of fact, uh, first of all, buckle up, uh, whether you're, you're watching this live right now or whether you're listening to the podcast later, we do believe that this will be the most uh, guest-packed show that we've done uh, early, essentially early in this show's history. We have nine or ten people joining us this morning, and that includes an interview in just a moment. But we wanted to draw your attention to something very exciting uh, posted just a short time ago. If you go to ryanjesperson.com slash team right now, ryanjesperson.com slash team, you will see our newest job posting that's right real talk uh by way of our parent company relay communications is looking for a chase producer to join our team if you go to ryanjesperson.com slash team you'll find all the details on what the job will look like what we're looking for uh who may be a good fit here and how to apply the the contest uh will be open uh the posting will be up until the 26th of february that's a friday so we encourage if if it's you or somebody you know that you think would be a great fit you have just under two weeks to get your application in thank you for your consideration of course we're excited to keep this journey going we know that uh, a big part of the reason why we're able to to grow is because our partners are right there with us every step of the way and that includes the team at bitcoin well our presenting sponsor you saw ceo adam o'brien on the show a short time ago uh, talking about gamestop and wall street and cryptocurrency it was the theme of our question of the week last week and we'll get into some of those results this morning bitcoin well based out of edmonton with bitcoin atms across the country is the easiest and quickest way to buy and sell bitcoin especially if you're looking for some expert advice they have a whole team ready to help you out along the way. You can find the link to their website, get their contact information, and learn more about them by clicking on the big Bitcoin Well logo under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, you'll remember a few weeks ago, uh, Irene Deshane joined us here on the show. She's the woman out of London, Ontario, that's been trying to reopen her civil suit against the Catholic Church, the Diocese of London. Uh, they've been trying to stop her uh, after they reached a settlement quite some time ago. Uh, they've been trying to stop her for more than a decade. Well, the Supreme Court of Canada, Canada's highest court, has sided uh, with Ms. Deshane uh, on Thursday. And and the dismissal of the diocese application marks, to a certain degree, the end of a legal road for the church, at least for now, but where does she go from here? Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome back to the program Irene Deshane uh, and her lawyer, Loretta Merritt of Torkin Maine's LLP. Ladies, welcome to Real Talk and thanks for making time for us this morning. Irene, can, can both of you hear us okay? And you can hear me all right? 
Okay, I think you guys might be on mute right now. Maybe just check your mic, Sam. You want to take a quick look and make sure that they're good to go. Want to make sure that we hit the ground running on this this one. Um, uh, So as a a bit of a reminder, there we go. I can hear it. Uh, Irene uh, joined us. You joined us, uh, I I guess it was a a few weeks ago now, Irene. And welcome back. You told uh, courageously your story uh, of, of, you know, I mean, to where you are present day as as a very public face of a very difficult conversation in Canada around the world. You're a survivor of childhood sexual abuse by a priest. Uh, for those that are just hearing this story for the first time right now, why was Thursday's decision by the Supreme Court so significant to you? Well, uh, actually, Ryan, because it was the last road of appeals for them to take, it was significant. So now I can finally reopen my civil suit and um, they're, um, attempts to appeal and appeal and appeal have run out. So it's good that I can finally start my civil suit and move forward from there. Now, last time you spoke with us, you you detailed exactly uh, how this situation had come about. Now, of course, it's it, it's a very long story, but essentially you had reached a settlement with the church based on information uh, which you later determined to be inaccurate or incorrect with regards to the pervasive and recurring nature of this abuse in the church. Can you bring our audience up to speed on on why you found yourself uh, back in front of a judge again, looking to reopen this settlement? Okay, so that's, you know, like almost 30 years worth of history. So it's really difficult to know where to start. But, you know, basically, um, when I went to the Catholic Church in 1992, they told me that they didn't know only one other survivor had come forward in the late 80s and that they didn't know anything about Father Sylvester's uh, sexual proclivities prior to that. And so um, when I filed my civil suit against the diocese, Uh, they told us that they had no knowledge of his proclivities while I was being abused. And so I did uh, end up settling and, and signed. um, Sorry. Yeah, I'll jump in. So uh, Irene settled her case and signed a release on the understanding that she had a very risky case because the church didn't know Sylvester was uh, molesting children at the time she was abused. So she went ahead and settled the case. Um, Years later, uh, after a criminal prosecution against him and many, many other uh, survivors coming forward, uh, it was uncovered that in fact, um, the church had in its possession all along uh, witness statements from three young girls who had been molested uh, by Sylvester before he ever got to Irene. So basically what happened was in 1962, uh, three young girls gave statements to the police in Sarnia and uh, the Sarnia police gave those statements to the church saying that Sylvester was molesting children. The church sent him off to uh, Quebec He avoided uh, criminal prosecution, and when he came back, uh, they put him in a bunch of other parishes where he went on to molest many, many, many more children, including Irene. So it was based on the misrepresentation by the church that they knew nothing about him molesting children uh, that Irene's settlement was eventually uh, set aside. So, Loretta, this is this is uh, if my math is correct, this is the third time that a court has sided with Irene. Why is the Supreme Court's decision so significant? And and what do you think this means, not just for Irene, but for the bigger picture? Uh, tragically, when we talk about uh, sexual abuse and survivors uh, from within the Catholic Church, we're talking about thousands of cases. 
Well, the, the significance um, for Irene, obviously, is huge. It means that she's not bound by a settlement uh, that she made based on misrepresentations that were made to her. So, so that's a huge and, and very significant uh, thing. The Supreme Court is the final word on the decision. No more appeals are possible. And now from where Irene sits, she has uh, a very strong case against the church where there is really no way they can deny their legal responsibility uh, for the uh, abuse that she suffered and the horrendous impact that it's had on her entire life. So from that perspective, it's very important. In terms of a broader perspective, um, courts are generally very reluctant to set aside settlement agreements that are entered into, um, particularly where there is a, a, a non-fraudulent misrepresentation. And I say non-fraudulent because we could not prove uh, that um, when the settlement was entered into, the representative of the, of the church uh, actually knew that the church had those police statements in their possession. So, um, you know, in circumstances where where false statements are made to people, um, even if it's not uh, up to the level of fraud, uh, the court is willing to intervene and set aside a settlement. And that's an important point. Irene, I would imagine to a certain degree, Thursday's decision by the Supreme Court obviously feels like a win. Uh it, it, it would obviously validate uh, the position that you've taken, but but emotionally, I mean, when when you received that, when, when you heard of the judgment, when you learned of the judgment, as you're processing this, you've had a few days now. Um, how do you feel about it personally, and and what does this mean for you moving forward? So it feels really good to know that this is their last delay tactic. So it was their last chance to appeal any of the rulings. And so now I can move forward with my with reopening my civil suit. And it feels like I'm one step closer to the end. And I, I really want to um, complete this civil suit process so that I can move forward in my life. It's just been too long. And it's just been hanging over my head for quite quite some time. And I'm just forward to moving forward in my life. You're seeking uh, just under $5 million in damages. Ultimately, what do you hope to achieve with this, Irene? How would you characterize what you're looking for here? I'm looking for something that's fair. You know, I don't really necessarily have a dollar amount. I think um, Loretta and I are going to sit down and talk about what the damages are and come up with a figure based on that. Where do you think, uh, Loretta, I would imagine there's a certain degree here that, that, that people will be paying close attention to wonder if precedent has been set. You talked about how unusual it is to see a settlement reversed or a settlement defeated in, in court here. What sort of an impact do you think this will have in, in the bigger conversation? I wonder if Loretta's lost me. Loretta, can you hear me by chance? It looks like she's on mute. I, I can hear you. Unfortunately, I've got a dog barking in the background. <laughs> that's it's okay. one of those unfortunate situations. Our, so my apologies. No, that's fine. Our show is very dog friendly. My my question is <laughs> my my question is just whether or not you think that that a certain. I mean, I would imagine the the quick answer is yes, but but whether there's been a precedent set here and whether this could have implications, uh, considering the court that's delivered this judgment on other settlements that may have been reached with survivors. Well, yes, the, the courts have been saying for a long time that in theory, you can set aside a, a settlement or any contract based on a non-fraudulent misrepresentation. Uh, but in terms of uh, actually doing it, uh, this is the first time I'm aware that they've actually done it. And certainly uh, first time the Supreme Court of Canada said it, it can and, and should be done.
Irene, what's your response to the message from the, from the Diocese of London that, that's essentially, I mean, they, they sent out a release. People can find it. They, they said that they're disappointed with the judgment. Do you have a response to, 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 to what they've put out there, their public statement? Well, they're disappointed with the response because it wasn't uh, in their favor. <laughs> but uh, And so I did read their uh, whole response. I just find that over the years, not just for myself, but for other survivors, they often say that they won't publicly make a statement due to ongoing litigation, but this time they chose to. And in August, they chose to as well. But I think their message is always, we're doing the right thing by survivors, yada, yada. And I think it's been proven time and again, what they say and what they do are usually two different things. So it's a statement and it has no weight on myself moving forward at all. What would be your message to other survivors that will see or hear this interview? Just generally speaking, Ryan. Yeah. So I just want people to know that there's different options. So if they if they are a survivor, they don't necessarily need to go through litigation. They can or cannot report to police. They can or cannot report uh, file a civil suit. But I just say to survivors, just surround yourself with personal and professional support and determine next steps based on that, and just get as much information as you can prior to moving forward. Well, I, I don't know if we say congratulations in a situation like this, but I will. Congratulations on the judgment. Irene, I know it's the one you were looking for on Thursday, and, and, and we wish you uh, peace and strength moving forward through this process, both yourself and your lawyer, Loretta Merritt. Thank you to both of you for joining us today. And Ryan, I just hope I'm going to be on your show just one more time so I can tell you I was successful in my civil suit and I'm finally able to move forward. Well, do you want to do you want to talk about it right now? I have a, we can, we we got lots of time. Why don't we talk about it right now? You teed it up beautifully. Well, I'm just hoping that you know the civil suit finally proceeds as it should, and I'll come to a settlement and it'll be satisfactory to all parties, and that uh, I can come back on your show and talk to you about that success. And yeah, that'll finally be the end of litigation. No kidding. And, and and I would imagine, you know, it's fair to say, and Loretta, you've probably seen this many times through your career, that 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 reaching a verdict or or finding some form of closure in a judicial sense or in a court is very different than than finding peace and healing and resolution personally. But what would the victory in civil court say, do you think, uh, to general society, Loretta? And, and how might you approach this case differently? Well, I think whenever these cases are are brought, it's it's not just about money for the survivors. It's about holding people to account. It's about being heard. It's about achieving some measure of justice. Uh, I, I'm not sure the word closure is very accurate because I think for most people, the effects of the abuse are are felt uh, throughout the course of their lifetime. But certainly, I think that um, when it, when a case is concluded. Um, there is some sort of vindication and satisfaction uh, that uh, it was worthwhile to have uh, fought the fight. Now, having said that, I, there are a few cases that last quite as long as Irene's. I, I'm not sure she or I will feel much other than relief when it comes to an end. Yeah, well said. Uh, that's Loretta Merritt of, of Torkin Mains LLP representing Irene uh, Deshane, a good friend of this show. And I, Irene, you've got our number. You've got our information. We'll expect to hear from you when this is ready to be discussed again. Thanks for making time for us on this Tuesday. 
Thanks, Ray. You bet. Uh, we're going to be talking about a, a story uh, out of Alberta in just a moment. Red Deer's public school board saying no to a request to, to observe Pride Week celebrations. Plus, coming up at uh, in about 15 minutes, about 20 minutes, we'll say from now, we're welcoming a panel of doctors. The doctors are in the house on Real Talk today. ER doctor uh, Shazma Mithani, uh, ICU doctor Darren Markland, and infectious disease doctor uh, Lenore Saxinger. Uh, Lenore kind of, well, I was discussing with them behind the scenes, kind of all three of them, um, Shazma and, and, and Darren as well. They, they had been paying some or varying degrees of attention to some interviews we had here on the show a short time ago, uh, most notably with MLA Drew Barnes and then uh, and then with David Harder, retired lieutenant colonel, formerly of the Canadian Force. Alberta Emergency Management Agency, both of them had 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 sort of called out government response at, at the provincial and federal level to this pandemic. They were talking about this end the lockdown caucus, at least MLA Barnes was. And these doctors reached out and said, hang on a second. Uh, we wanted to talk about th- things like, you know, um, uh, you know, physical distancing, mass compliance, uh, policies around stores reopening, how, how to balance public health and the health of the economy, all these types of things. And, and we said to this panel of doctors, you know, if you could watch these two interviews and take notes and pull quotes, we say, in other words, watch it, watch it like a news producer would watch it. And, and when you hear a sentence that, that needs to be discussed, yank it out, send us the time code. Sam Brooks will pull the clip and we'll get into it. We gave them this assignment. Oh, did they and, deliver? Uh, boy, did they ever deliver, oh, right? Yeah. I guess, you know, you, you asked three doctors to do something. And they sent us this Google Doc that was like the most well-organized. Uh, you know, I, I was sitting there thinking. Very easy to go through. It was some insight. Yeah, it, it reminded me, though, why I'm not, for example, an intensive care physician. Because, you know, I have things scribbled down on cocktail napkins and these guys. Anyway, that's coming up just after 9 o'clock. I think it's going to be a segment that provides great value. We want to remind you, and I hope that you have had a fabulous Valentine's Day. The team at Dairy Queen was proud to be a part of it for so many different real talkers. Uh, Michael Lieber, one of the owners of the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, uh, came in here all masked up the other week and dropped off a couple of these uh, Valentine's Day cakes uh, for Sam and myself. And he said, we love how many people come into our stores, how many people come through our drive throughs how many people even leave notes on their delivery apps and let the Dairy Queen locations know that they're ordering because they heard about them on Real Talk. Absolutely fantastic. Keep it up. The teams at Dairy Queen are proud supporters of Real Talk. And of course, they'll have another promotion, you know, coming up that we'll be announcing shortly into the month of uh, February and then into March, of course. Clean Air Club. We're getting more and more viewer testimonials from you. We love your tweets. We love seeing your emails with photos of these furnace filters that are neatly packaged and dropped off on your doorstep. More and more of you saying we went to Clean Air club.ca it took less than five minutes we got our furnace filters on our doorstep in some cases the very next day now we're saving money and we're breathing easier it's what clean air club is all about you can check them out at cleanairclub.ca you may have been paying attention to this story out of red deer alberta a trustee a longtime trustee with the red deer public school district wanted to see the district observe pride week well it turns out that's Not going to be the case. And it's got people talking across Canada. Uh, It's a pleasure to welcome to the show the trustee that is working to make this happen. Diane McCauley has been a representative with the Red Deer Public District for more than 15 years. She recently won the Women's of Excellence uh, Award in 2020 from Red Deer and District Communities Foundation for Community 
building. Uh, Dr. Christopher Wells, a familiar face to many, is the uh, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair for the Public Understanding of Sexual and Gender Minority Youth at McEwen University in Edmonton. He's also the editor of the International Journal of LGBT Youth. Uh, to the two of you, welcome to Real Talk and, and a good Tuesday morning to you. Morning. Thank you, Ryan. Morning. Uh, Trustee McCauley, why, why was it so important for you? It might seem like an obvious question, but I don't want to take it for granted. Why was it important for you to to encourage the district to observe Pride Week? And, and how are you feeling now that it's a no? Well, um, first off, I'm very proud of what our district has been doing to support the GSAs in our schools and our We came out with a SOGI policy, a sexual oriented, sexual orientation and gender identity policy that actually received wards in the province. And as things change and as our community changes, I felt that um, we needed more in our schools to support our schools. And one of the biggest reasons was because uh, here in Red Deer, a group called Central Alberta Pride uh, celebrates Pride Week, but it's in August. So after seeing Edmonton Public in 2019 declare the first week of June as their Pride Declaration Week, I said, ah, oh, they, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I think what they did was a really good thing. And that's where I started to get letters and emails and other individuals from the community saying, this is, this is a great idea. This is why we need it. This is why we still need to take those positive steps forward to show that we support our communities in our schools. So, Chris, you, you see this decision uh, to, to bring people up to speed. Uh, don't want to assume everybody recognizes that what was you know decided here. But instead of pride celebrations, the district has declared an official diversity week. Some people might look at it and say, well, well what's wrong with that? So what's wrong with that? Yeah, diversity week, uh, something like that. We probably would have seen 10 or 15 years ago in, in a lot of places, including schools. Um, what what it what it does is it's sort of the you know let's put everything together and stir it together and it it doesn't really address the issues of uh, equity recognizing that the experiences of LGBTQ students are different than the experiences of uh, other students you know but the reality is there's there's 52 weeks in the in the year and um, certainly we can sell in the same way that. It's important to have the specificity and it's important to send these messages of support and inclusion to these uh, vulnerable. We're getting this signal kind of dipping in and out here. It's, it's always a delicate dance, Chris, because I don't want to step on your toes while you're talking, but, but we're, we're missing chunks of your sentence. I want to circle back to you. Uh, Trustee McCauley, what sort of messages have you been receiving since this story went public? I've seen people talking about it. Uh, I mean, literally across the country. What have people been saying to you? Sorry, Ryan, you, I cut it. You cut out there. <laughs> Diane, what are people saying to you since, since this decision went public? Well, you know what? There's been a variety of opinions. And one of the things, I don't know if you know this, it seems to be a secret out there in society. You can't please everyone. Did you know that? Mm. And um, so what I'm hearing is uh, a lot of support to bring it forward to the board. I'm hearing also a lot of individuals that are very thankful for a diversity week and a lot of individuals that are still very um, uneducated on what Pride Week means and why our LGBTQ community needs more support and more education. So 
everything. But from my end, I'm hearing more support on this really needs to go through with a Pride Week. So, Chris, this is this is sort of bigger picture. I mean, this isn't just limited to Red Deer. We're talking about Red Deer now because it's been in the news. But where do conversations, do you think, in a perfect world need to go? I mean, where, where are attitudes evolving? Where do you see uh, areas where, as a society, we can do better in communicating? What, what should be the focus? Well, well, I think you're seeing uh, this turn into a hot button issue because uh, schools are the focus. Education is, is the future. And what we know is that uh, young people, particularly LGBTQ2 youth, they need to see themselves reflected in their curriculum, in the halls and the walls of their schools. It's a really important message to, to say, we see you, we value you, we support you. And, and that's what's so disconcerting uh, about this decision is the message it sends to those LGBTQ students, the LGBTQ staff members, uh, you know, the same sex parented families uh, in Red Deer Public, um, really calling into question whether the district supports them and their communities. And it, it's really a, a backward step from that very progressive policy that Diane mentioned. Um, you know, this is just the natural evolution uh, of that policy. So I think people are really encouraging uh, the school board to reconsider this uh, decision. It's it's really important that we're celebrating all aspects of diversity. One aspect is, is not placed above another, but, you know, schools are always these contest contested sites because it's really about uh, building the next generation of young people, uh, our next uh, generation of community leaders. Diane, what sort of conversation uh, or conversations were you privy to with regards to, you know, your fellow trustees? Do, do you do you get the sense that that there is an understanding of some of the nuances of this conversation? Do you do you think some of the concern um, following uh, this decision, I mean, the, I, I see that Red Deer families are starting petitions here, that more and more people are talking about this. Is that resonating with your fellow trustees? So I haven't been able to talk to my trustees since the um, motion came out. Uh, geez, it's been only less than a week ago. But, you know, I've worked with a lot of these individuals for um, multitude, for a multitude of years, and they always have what is the best interest of children at heart. They really, really, really do. And I, I got across my fingers that this will come out in a way that is going to be best for students. And whatever, um, I can only talk about the reasons why I brought it forward. And when Trustee Manning brought forward the motion on diversity, she spoke from the heart. She really did. And I, I think this is a great learning opportunity and for us to come together as not only a district, but as a board to work on what is best for the community. You know, maybe we drop the ball by not doing the proper amount of consultation first before putting this forward. You know, with everything that Dr. Wells has said, and if anybody has known me, I'm 100% on board with the Pride Week and we should have Pride Week. But maybe we can get some other form of combination where we will have Pride Week in June, where Pride Week should be, and Diversity Week on one of the other 52 weeks of the year as well. But I really feel the board needs to come together and talk about that. And fingers crossed that we're going to do something really good for our community. 
Dr. Wells, not not to be cynical, because uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm actually optimistic and supportive of things like this. But I do know that there are cynics out there, and I'd like to try to represent the questions so we can have meaningful conversations. People will say, I can, I, I can hear it in my brain right now. Uh, people are going to say, okay, you got Pride Week, you got Diversity Week, you're going to have, you know, probably a Black Lives Matter event, and then you've got Black History Month, and you're going to have Pink Shirt Day, and you're going to have, you know, all, all of these things, right? Um, and people might say, are these actually effective? I mean, do they actually accomplish anything? What do they accomplish? Yeah, these uh, are really uh, important because of the the message that they send to, uh, you know, not just the the young people from these communities, but to all students, all staff members, and to the larger community, right? The schools are often considered to be the heart of communities. Um, and that's why we have such an invested uh, interest. But these kind of days, these kinds of events, they matter because they, they interrupt what we might see as the status quo, right? The, the, the everyday business that is still, unfortunately, creating inequitable environments where some students don't feel included, they don't feel safe, they 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 get pushed out of their schools or they drop out of their schools. You know, the, the real reality we're dealing with here, particularly for our LGBTQ students and our Indigenous students, is for many of them, school is still not a safe experience. These are two young two groups of young people in Canadian society they're at are that are at the greatest risk in fact you know greatest risk for health concerns for suicide ideation these are real and significant problems that we're trying to address through interventions like Pride Week but I think the ultimate message that events like this and and why we have policies like the one Diane mentioned is to tell them uh, these young people that there's nothing wrong with them they're not the problem. It's the uh, discriminatory or the unsafe environments they find themselves that they're in are the problem. So, you know, the answer to, uh, you know, addressing those environments is education. Uh, Dr. Wells, before I before I thank the two of you for your time, I have to note that the uh, just a short time ago, you as the co-founder of Pride Tape, uh, Pride Tape marked its fifth anniversary and I was tuned into Hockey Day in Canada on Saturday. I'm not sure if you noticed. I'm sure you probably did and heard from hundreds of people that the legendary Ron McLean, as he was taking his twirl around Sam Gagne's childhood outdoor rink, uh, had his stick wrapped, uh, the shaft of it, in a pride tape. What does that mean to you? Can you bring us up to speed on the story? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it really means that this is Canada. These are our values. This is who we are as a as a nation, as a as a community that, uh, you know, understands the importance of uh, diversity and, and human rights. And, you know, there's nothing more Canadian than than hockey. And so it means a lot to again, to see that visibility. You know, to bring pride, to bring pride tape, um, uh, you know, uh, as part of Hockey Day uh, in Canada, uh, it just sends a, a strong, you know, message. And it's it's a subtle message and it doesn't have to be anything more than that. The people that uh, need to see it will notice it. Yeah, very well said. Uh, beautifully said. And congratulations on the success of that. Um, Diane, in closing, we, we always ask our guests to give us something to, th to think about, something to, to digest through the day, a, a call to action, so to speak. We see what you're advocating for and what you're working on. What's your message to your fellow Canadians, uh, to your fellow Albertans that are going to see or hear this interview? If I may, it's going to be a two-parter, Ryan. Um, first, I want to thank everyone who has reached out to me. Um, by social media, by calls. I've, I've heard and I've read every one of them, whether they've been in support or not. I've, I've heard them and they have touched me, 
touched me, touched me. As you said, we're responsible for what, as a trustee, we're responsible for what happens in our schools. And I think this is a responsibility that we need to take very seriously. And I think this is a communication, this is a part of a communication um, conversation that we need to be more actively engaged in. So I guess my action response would be to be more actively involved in your schools and in your LGBTQ community to see what we can do to help them. Well said. Diane McCauley, uh, 15-year trustee with Red Deer Public School District, Dr. Christopher Wells, uh, editor of the International Journal of LGBT Youth uh, out of uh, Grant McEwen University. Thanks to, to both of you for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. We're going to check in with our panel of, of physicians in just a moment. I also don't want to take uh, for granted or just blow past the fact that we're getting a ton of comments right now. Uh, th- this is this is one of the things, uh, sort of the downsides to a jam-packed show like this, where we are literally minute to minute heading to a different interview. Emily Bazelon is going to join us from Slate Political Gab Fest, a, 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 you know, a law professor at Yale University. She's going to talk about Donald Trump's acquittal, his uh, acquitted again. Uh, that that's coming up in in about 45 minutes from now. We're going to check in with the CEO of a tech company that's moving its headquarters uh, to Alberta. A good news story amid tough economic headlines. Um, but with all these stories, you know, comes a fast moving show, which means that that, that it could it, it, it could strike you as though we're glossing over all of these comments on serious subject matter. I want to take a second to recognize and, and reflect on uh, what some of you are saying on our live chat here on YouTube. I mean, we started the show talking to Irene Deshane, a sexual abuse survivor, um, after, after years of abuse in the Catholic Church, uh, she she emerged uh, as a as a force and is now uh, committed to to not only finding justice in her own context, but as well as to advocating uh, for justice for other survivors. and And it's resonating on our chat line. and And I mean, if we had all day, it still wouldn't be enough time to do justice to some of the comments that you're making. Uh, Riley says that I mean the entire Catholic Church should be held responsible for stuff like this. This is an issue that's been consistent for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Judy, how about this for a heartbreaking and, and telling statement? Judy says, as a survivor, there is no justice ever. You learn to live with it. Uh, that from Judy. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, Kareen says, please don't let there be a non-disclosure clause here. Mike is watching, and Mike just was said, we're with you, Irene. You know, Kim says, yeah, Irene says, Ryan, you've got to bring her back. This story's not over yet. Joanne says, we're behind you, Irene. I mean, it's just amazing, the community that that comes together here every single morning. Um, you know, Terry says, uh, based on the numbers, she says, statistically, 80 people currently involved in this chat right now were sexually abused as children. She's talking about the, you know, the percentage of society. It's a heartbreaking and gut-wrenching and I mean, it's just a nauseating statistic to think about. Terry says, let that sink in. We have to normalize these difficult conversations. That from Terry. Mark says, our legal system's so broken when the game is appeal, 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 like the church is doing here. Drag it out. Make it as expensive and painful as possible by using the system against people. These are just some of the comments from our conversation with Irene. Never mind the conversation we just had with Trustee McCauley and Dr. Wells. Right? Tracy says, you know, diversity week. You know, that's equivalent to the idea that maybe we don't need Black Lives Matter because all lives matter. You know, Tracy says, so why even acknowledge the specific inclusion of LGBTQ? 2s plus kids you know let's just say we love diversity and, and tracy is typing with a, a heavy dose of sarcasm 
We're going to continue to to look at what you have to say about this. You know, you can you can you can. Uh, this is interesting. The watcher chimes in and says, "You remember back like twenty years ago when Red Deer City Council announced there would never be a pride in Red Deer." Time will tell," said the watcher. "I don't remember that. I was I was living in Red Deer shortly after that time. I don't remember that." We'd be curious to hear from people that are watching in from central Alberta. Keep the comments coming. Real Talk RJ is the hashtag we keep an eye on. That is the hashtag that is powered by Park Power, uh, a provider of Internet, electricity and natural gas in the province of Alberta. Park Power is proud to take 10 percent of their profits and plug them back into the community by way of their charitable nonprofit partners. It's part of their corporate citizenship, the commitment that they've made. And they've made a commitment to you, a real talker. If you visit parkpower.ca right now and use the promo code 2021-realtalk, whether you're talking about a residential or commercial account, they're going to give you 70 bucks off your first bill. That's right. No strings attached. 70 bucks off your first bill if you use the promo code 2021-realtalk at parkpower.ca. Friends, we're getting closer and closer to March 5th. That's opening day for Friesen Brothers, their 15th Alberta location. It's been under construction for months as the excitement has been building in South Edmonton. That's where we're coming to you from. Edmonton, Alberta, Friesen Brothers has been proudly Alberta grown and Alberta owned for more than 60 years supporting local producers. It's where you'll find the best Alberta beef, turkey, chicken, pork, Alberta milled flour in their sourdough, even Alberta produce whenever they can. You'll find Friesen Brothers just off the Anthony Henday at Rabbit Hill Road opening March 5th. Well, we had a couple conversations uh, over the past 10 shows or so that resonated strongly with our audience. We've told you the show is real talk. We've told you that we're going to take on subject matter that some may shy away from because we want to get to the bottom of stories. We want to be able to figure out what makes people tick, why people believe or why people are championing causes that we are. So it's why we reached out to MLA Drew Barnes, who's joined this end the lockdown caucus. The United Conservative MLA out of Cypress Medicine Hat joined us on the show and talked about why he believes the provincial and federal governments have essentially blown it on pandemic management. He says we need to end the lockdowns. He says lockdowns have been just as unhealthy. Uh, he says, as, as a matter of fact, he says lockdowns have been more unhealthy or more harmful to society than the pandemic itself. He cited Lieutenant Colonel David Redmond's reports and the work that Redmond did in developing Alberta's pandemic plan uh, in 2014. This is something that we went through, and you can, of course, watch these interviews in their entirety if you go to check out our YouTube channel, or, of course, you can subscribe to our podcast. Well, many of you reached out and, and said, I've got some real concerns with, with some of the things that these individuals were claiming. I've got some real concerns with the premise of the conversation and some of this needs to be fact checked. Well, we had three doctors in mind, and we're grateful that all three of them have agreed to join us today. Uh, Dr. Darren Markland is an intensive care physician and a kidney doctor with an interest in preventative health care and active living. Uh, Dr. Lenora Saxinger is an infectious diseases physician and a COVID-19 scientific advisory group co-lead. 
she's, uh, of course, uh, been doing media across Canada. All three of these doctors have, and you'll recognize them. Um, uh, Dr. Shazma Mathani was, was one of our very first guests here on Real Talk. Uh, she's an emergency room physician in one of the busiest ERs, uh, one of the busiest inner city ERs in the entire country. Uh, doctors, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your availability on this important subject matter. No Thank you for having us. Why don't we get right to the interviews? Uh, I want our audience to know that the the clips, we call them, the quotes that you're going to see here, the highlights from these past interviews were highlights that were identified and selected by our panel of physicians, and they're going to respond. We'll go to MLA Drew Barnes first. Sam Brooks has the first uh, clip teed up, and then we'll hand it over to you, our doctors. Let's roll it. Dave Redmond in 2014 did uh, a, a, a pandemic response with, with four real parts to it, including keeping the economy going, keeping our societal impacts low, but also including, uh, you know, stopping the spread and, and the effects of the virus. And, and of course, Mr. Redmond's been out that, that large parts of this plan, if any, have not been followed. So one of the things to discuss is why, is there a better way to do these things? And, and, and I'm looking forward to that discussion. Uh, I mean, uh, everybody's heart's in the same place. Let's, let's protect Albertans, let's protect the vulnerable, and uh, you know, let's get this as, as right as we can. Okay, so let's protect Albertans. Let's protect the vulnerable. Dr. Mathani, we'll, we'll start with you. Uh, set the scene for us here with regards to the impression that you were left with after watching that interview. <laughs> um, well, I mean, the, you know, we keep using the word unprecedented. I kind of hate it. I know Dr. Saxinger and I have I've maybe had this discussion before, but uh, this, is, this is a virus unlike one that we've seen in at least 100 years. And so using a pandemic plan from... 2014, where we didn't even know a virus like this could exist or could have the impact uh, that it has had, I think is um, problematic and and not really appropriate in this situation. We know that COVID-19, uh, the you know original strain, is quite contagious, much more contagious than the flu, for example. And we know now that these new variants are even more contagious than that. And so we need to use um, an updated plan. We need to use updated measures uh, that are... Um, that work in the context of what we're dealing with today. Uh, Dr. Saxinger, uh, when it comes to how the pandemic should be managed, there was on paper this four point plan that started with getting control of the virus. Uh, I think it goes without saying that's easier said than done. But uh, both of our guests last week said, well, if you can't do that and if you fail at that, then everything else is going to fall apart. Um, they were quite critical of what Alberta did, of what Canada did in trying to get control of the virus, and, and in large part because we didn't lock down the appropriate venues. They were saying we should have locked down long-term care centers. We should have quarantined people with comorbidities or people most at risk and, and essentially let the rest of society uh, function per usual, function normally, so to speak. Is there any red flag that immediately waves itself when you start to hear an approach like that? I mean, I, I think that that's such a seductive idea that I see why people keep on going back to it. But fact is, no jurisdiction has successfully shielded the vulnerable because the virus can spread before people know they're symptomatic. And we have seen again and again that it really does not take much in terms of an incident to set up a really disastrous chain of events in long-term care. So, you know, the, the idea of basically NHL bubble um, level quarantining long-term care and all the providers in it is 
is actually, you know, for one thing, insupportable and kind of inhumane, um, no matter how you try to design it, very, very expensive, and also neglects a really other important fact, which is even if we manage to, you know, protect those who are most elderly, um, but the infection is moving unfettered through the rest of the population, we will see the relatively rarer effects on the rest of the population in high numbers. And so if you look at what happened in the UK, um, the excess deaths in people aged 45 to 64 up till November were 17.6% above baseline. So the excess deaths were up by almost 20% in this young, healthy group. And the, the only reason that we don't see more young people in hospital is because we are actually trying to prevent infections in hospital, uh, I mean, in the community. And so, you know, if we just let it let her rip through the rest of the population, more young people will get sick and a proportion of those will get very, very sick and we will have a significant number of excess deaths. And so the whole thing falls apart. Um, as soon as you let the infection numbers get that high in the community. Okay. Uh, Dr. Markland, we're going to get to you in just a moment here. I want to get to our next clip. Uh, MLA Barnes had a lot to say about the respect he sees demonstrated by people everywhere he goes. This is Drew Barnes on the show last week. Everywhere I go in Alberta, I see respect. I see people caring and protecting each other. And I also will say that, you know, let's get this information out there so people know what works and what isn't working. And, and the fatigue 12 months into this, um, you know, I, 18,000 people at a hockey game. Ryan, one of the real sad things here is, is we've had, had a group of young men, you know, hockey players that, uh, you know, there, there's been a lot of self-harm. It's, it's so sad. But our medicine hat taggers are a huge part of this community. And, um, you know, we we have an arena that, that seats, you know, about 6,000 people that, you know, why why couldn't we have 1,000 or 1,500 in there or something like that? Okay, Dr. Darren Markland, your thoughts. I completely empathize with the MLA. He um, has repeatedly said that he's representing the views of his constituents. And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, early in the pandemic, <clears throat> And those constituents were relatively well spared from this. This this spreads by contact and high concentrations of populations. That is no longer the fact. I can tell you honestly that we're bringing more and more people in from the communities. In fact, our hotspots are places like uh, MLA Barnes's community. And that's because these uh, these attitudes do propagate. And yes, uh, we care about each other, uh, but I think the real manifestation of caring is preventing the spread of this virus. And with the ensuing uh, variants that are that are in the community, this is going to become more of an issue, not less of one. It's one thing to provide hope to people, but you have to base it on uh, realistic expectations and a realistic timeline. And just to say that we're missing something and we're missing our community spirit without coming up with a rational plan, which means the proper isolation procedures and distribution of vaccines will only make people more expectant, angrier, and this care will turn into more of a harmful type of dark hope. Dr. Mathani, I, 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 I do see evidence of what Drew Barnes was talking about, though, when he talks about COVID fatigue. All right. And, and I think that it manifests itself in different ways. But, I mean, you know, that that video from I mean, I don't know if I want to characterize this as the cause of that. But everybody saw that video last week from Earl's around the table with about 15 people, you know, gathering and celebrating and cheersing. And, and, and I've even heard it from people I know that are that they're just so tired of it. They're just so ready to move on. And, and I think sometimes as human beings, we can conveniently 
push some things out of our minds, like the fact that there are new variants and this problem is far from solved simply because we're exhausted by the whole exercise. Yeah, I mean, Ryan, we we're all exhausted, right? We're all exhausted as Albertans, as citizens, and we're exhausted as healthcare workers, too. Um, with these new variants that are becoming more prevalent and that we're getting more and more cases of, we're very much at risk of a third wave. Um, that third wave could certainly impact the healthcare system in a dramatic way and impact the um, the ability of our healthcare workers, of us, of us three doctors and our colleagues, our ability to cope. Um, I understand the COVID fatigue. It's been a year now, uh, and all of us want to get back to a normal life. Um, unfortunately, the situation that we're in today is is not really conducive to us doing that. And you know, I echo what Dr. Markland uh, said that. You know, with the new variants, we really need to be more careful. We we need to um, be mindful of of the crowds that are that we're around. Um, we know that the variant even is more potentially more transmissible in outdoor settings too, and so we may even have to change the restrictions that were or the or the precautions that we're putting in place going forward. And and I know that's tough to hear. I know that that's that's tough for me to even say because you know we all want this to be over, but in order to protect the lives of Albertans in order to protect the vulnerable and and those that are not vulnerable. We need to continue to do the right thing. A big part of this uh, in, in understanding, uh, obviously, COVID-19 and, and understanding what public health measures are working or are not working is being able to crunch the numbers. And Drew Barnes touched on numbers and what we have seen and what we haven't seen play out. Dr. Saxinger, I'll get your response to this in just a second. We know these 13 cases that you talk about in the in the community close to you. I mean, you have one wedding or one funeral or, or, or one mass or whatever you have, Drew. You know, 13 cases can be 150 cases in a day. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, again, we just haven't seen those numbers bear out down here. Uh, we just we just it just hasn't happened again. It's because people have been respectful. Um, and again, I, I just would would absolutely believe that that respect from Albertans would continue. And this group is about openness and, and transparency. And it's about looking at the effects of the lockdown. So so, Dr. Saxinger, it's it, it, it's kind of the. It's sort of a chicken and egg scenario. Are the numbers low so we should reopen or are the numbers low because we're not reopening? How do you make sense of it? I mean, I think that people are always tempted to look at their own experience, and I understand that. But it does not take a very far look to see what happens um, if things are basically left open to people's best judgment. Um, if we look at an example like four hours south of Calgary, if we go to Montana, um, at, there was a point where their active case rate was about 10 times higher than ours. Um, and they were using refrigerator trucks as morgues. And I don't think the people there are significantly different than the people here. Um, so I think that the worldwide experience is something that has to be taken into account. And that places that, um, you know, basically rely on voluntary measures. And that actually includes Sweden, which is everyone else's favorite place to look at. Um, but Sweden actually relied on voluntary measures and they had amongst the highest death rates in the European Union um, compared to their nearest neighbors, much, much higher and significant healthcare stresses. And, uh, you know, it's been very controversial there, but I, I think that you cannot say that that was an unfettered success. So there's a lot of examples of what this virus does in communities and the difference between having no cases and having a huge outbreak is very minimal, honestly. Uh, you know, there was one person in Korea who was responsible for 5,000 cases over the course of a day. 
So, you know, super spreader events are definitely a feature with this virus. And that's why we actually have to make sure that we are just reducing the opportunity for that to happen across the board until we get vaccines rolled out. Uh, doctor, you, you touched on Sweden as an example. When we checked in with uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired David Redmond, he, he touched on Sweden. And I want to play this clip uh, at length. Uh, it's about a minute long. And then I'll, I'll get all three of you to respond to this one, uh, starting with Dr. Marklin. Uh, this is the retired Lieutenant Colonel. Lockdowns on Real have Talk. done nothing to contain spread. The viral infection curve that we see every year in our country has been matched exactly with COVID as with everything else. And let me give you one that I know your viewers will it'll explode their heads. Sweden has not ordered the wearing of masks. In fact, they strongly discourage it. They believe in one meter, not two meter social distancing. They have not ordered their businesses closed. They have not ordered their schools closed except for two very short periods and only for their senior high school, what we'd call grade 11 and 12, once in the spring and once over the Christmas break. Sweden, if you compare Sweden to Quebec, it has a lower case count, uh, sorry, not a lower case count, a lower death per capita than Quebec. It also has a lower death rate than Germany, sorry, than France, than Italy, than Spain, than the UK, than Belgium, and even Switzerland, all who went to severe lockdowns. And the reason why you always hear in the media, because they love to bounce off the fact that, well, it's much worse than its Nordic neighbors. Well, if you cherry pick your facts, then you'll have ignored all those other countries I just listed. But the reason why Sweden did worse than both Norway and Finland is because Sweden has not quarantined their long-term care homes like I'm saying we should have here. Dr. Marklin? Whoa. When he said your head was going to explode, he was right. Uh, that was a masterclass <laughs> in misinformation. Um, and he's done the classic thing where he's peppered facts with false, false actions and false narratives. So number one, comparing Sweden and Quebec, I couldn't think of a more <laughs> disparate population in Quebec. You know, you can't go around without getting a hug and a kiss. And the Swedish tend to be quite standoffish. They're very different cultures. And for that reason, even though Sweden had a bad experience, part of the reason why it wasn't as bad as it could have been was that the Swedes are a very homogeneous population who tend to be quite uh, rule following. And they were doing things that their government wasn't suggesting. They were being more careful than was suggested by the health measures. So I could start with that. And then we could move on serially to every other lack of information and, and factoid. Like when he's quoting the European, the European numbers, most of those are wrong. Like Belgium has a very high number. Um, and we could spend an hour just debunking that statement. I think the fundamental problem is that his experience revolves around influenza. And influenza was very different for many reasons. Uh, Dr. Saxon can go into all the reasons about spread and previous herd immunity, but this does not translate into a pandemic plan that works for COVID. Uh, Dr. Saxinger, would you pick it up from there? Sure. I mean, it's like just back to the, the fact piece, Quebec actually has um, in Canada is responsible for the lion's share of deaths in Canada. So that, that comparison is really not an appropriate one. Um, I, I think that, you know, that's, that was very much related to long-term care. That fact is very true. Um, Dr. Markland mentioned something. If you look at the Google mobility data between countries, Sweden actually de facto was in lockdown um, during the time period, and they still suffered higher mortality than many other countries um, with, you know, with similar demographics. And so, I mean, it's just kind of wrong. Um, and I, I, I don't think it's, 
too worthwhile to go into too many details. I would also point out that, you know, there, some of the other differences between Sweden and the neighboring countries um, have been analyses looking at the outcomes of lockdown versus no lockdown. And the economic outcomes in Sweden are actually, if anything, worse um, than other countries that did have lockdown. So, so although it remains a very, you know, con um, controversial country to discuss, I actually don't think that there's there's anything there that should inform what we do here. And I, I think it's very important for people to just make sure they always go back. I would suggest Our World in Data is an excellent website. Um, and you can actually look at graphics yourself to look at, you know, case fatality rates and mortality rates between places. And I think it can be very instructive to see that yourself because people sometimes come up with data that is is framed in a way that can be kind of misleading. Dr. Mithani, we've got a, a, a viewer right now, CH, that says, I really want you all to reflect on how scared and easily manipulated you are. This is a sad state of the world. What would you say to CH? Um, you know, I would, if, if it were possible, I would invite CH to come to our hospitals and see that this is not, in fact, um, you know, I, I think he, uh, he or she is alluding to the fact that this might be a hoax. It's not. Uh, we we are seeing um, cases continue to come in. Thankfully, things have settled down a little bit. But you look back to when the second wave was peaking in kind of mid-December into late December, and it was it was terrible. We had multiple cases coming in a day. Dr. Markland can talk about how many cases were in the intensive care unit. We, uh, you know, there were multiple patients that I sent from the emergency department to the intensive care unit. And these are young patients, like in their 30s and 40s. Um, so it, it truly is not just the, you know, the population that was mentioned um, in those interviews last week about long-term care, um, mostly long-term care patients. Yes, it is mostly long-term care patients, but there are multiple, multiple people who are healthy, otherwise healthy, who are also being affected by this. Um, and and it's it's the reality of what's happening right now. OK, I want to ask the three of you about this statement. This was an interesting one from uh, from the retired lieutenant colonel. As a matter of fact, he, this is kind of how he opened uh, in characterizing this as a public emergency, not a public health emergency. Uh, we'll get to that interview. Uh, Those buttons the, the, are right next to each the, other. The, the Real Talk studio <laughs> band is ready to rock and roll. Uh, they've been sitting <laughs> silent for too long. Uh, let's get to the lieutenant colonel. Here he is. I would say that it is a public emergency, not a public health emergency, and that it should have right from the start been treated as a public emergency. And the very first thing you do in any emergency is you look at the hazard and you determine who is most at risk. Clearly, back in February, we knew that the people most at risk were the people over the age of 60 who had multiple comorbidities worldwide. At that time in February, 95% of all deaths worldwide were in that target group. So here in Alberta, what we should have done is taken our pre-existing pandemic plan, the one that stated 2014 on the website, taken it out, reviewed it, and tailored it specifically to COVID-19 with the very first task to be protecting those most at risk. And that would have meant that by the middle of March, we should have put in place a quarantine plan for all our seniors in long-term care homes. Uh, Dr. Markland, why don't we start with you? Do you buy, I mean, I, 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 I sort of, in, when, in looking back on that interview, I'll be honest, the one thing that I would, I mean, I'll oftentimes go back and beat myself up after interviews and go, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you push back on that? Why didn't you jump on this? And one that I should have is 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 the clarification that it's not a public health emergency 
it's a public emergency. I just I, I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that statement. How about you? I don't understand it. Yeah, I don't know how you can separate it. I have no idea how health doesn't factor in to the general consensus of emergency. But I'll leave that to my emergency colleague, Dr. Mathani. <laughs> I think uh, what I, I really notice about that is um, the whole concept of comorbidities. Like, I work in an intensive care unit. I know what comorbidities are. And I would defy you to walk into a room with 10 Albertans and not find some, at least uh, six of those who don't have a comorbidity. If you are slightly obese, meaning a BMI over 25, you have a comorbidity. And let me tell you, COVID hits people with obesity. That is probably one of the most common thing in our Albertan population. If you have a little bit of high blood pressure, you have a comorbidity. So the fact that the plan entails isolating this segment of the population means you have to segment the majority of people over the age of 40, which is not a viable plan which really then just, that is the linchpin of which that argument rotates. And when you pull that out, that wheel just comes off the bus and rolls down the road. Dr. Mathani, I do want you to respond to what Dr. Markland said. I th- let me set the scene for people that didn't see the interview with the retired Lieutenant Colonel. He talked a lot about quarantine. He talked about quarantine uh, in, in long-term care context, which would obviously have staffing implications. And, th- and then folks with with comorbidities, um, you know, as, as if, by the way, and those that are most at risk, which is, I'll say, a really ambiguous statement to make, but, but I'll let the Lieutenant Colonel speak for himself. I'll get you to respond. Let's roll it. If you're going to quarantine a senior's home and the staff, what you do is you get a designated uh, uh, living space for the staff, which is probably a hotel or something like that, where their meals and accommodation is provided for free. They quarantine for 14 days. They are then moved in a quarantine busing system to as many long-term care homes that are quarantined as you want during the day to do shifts and then back to their accommodation at night. They do a 30-day shift and then they go home to their families. Before their next shift starts, they go for a 14-day quarantine and do another 30-day shift. You and I, we live in Alberta. We know that's exactly how the oil sands operate right now. Dr. Mathani? Um, oh, there's so much there, Ryan. So, I mean, it's interesting because if you watch the whole interview earlier in the interview, he talks about a humane way in which to um, isolate the long-term care staff. This is anything but humane, right? I mean, to isolate someone from their family for 45 plus days is completely inhumane. And not to mention, you know, most of the population um, or most of the workers that are in long-term care facilities, these are immigrants who are women. And so it's specifically targeting an under, underrepresented and a minority population. Um, when he compares it to oil and gas, I mean, that is, it, it's not the same at all. First of all, uh, typically my understanding is the schedule for oil and gas workers is two weeks on, two weeks off, not to mention that they're, they tend to be paid a lot more money and they don't have to include the quarantine, uh, if, especially if they're staying in Alberta, they don't have to include the quarantine on either end of their work schedule. And so this is completely unrealistic. Um, it's, it would be prohibitively expensive, I would imagine. And it's really just inhumane to the workers. Well, this and, you know, one of the things that, that I think I've noticed and it is maybe not obvious, but when I talked to uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel Redmond, he talked about and he referenced the, the statistic that Jason Kenney has pointed out several times as well, Alberta's premier, that the average age of death uh, from COVID-19 in Alberta is 84. And I found that sometimes in storytelling, you can present a fact and it, and it sort of acts as it's like not saying, just saying, you know what I mean? 
like you may be accurately saying the average cause of death is 84 and that's a fact but what you're really saying is that young people and most people don't really have to worry about this and i'm concerned about the message it sends uh, dr saxinger how does that statement resonate with you I mean, I, I think that it's at some level, I'm a bit offended to imagine that older people are not worth as much. Older people actually built the province and they deserve our protection and care. Um, the next thing I think is that we can't neglect the fact that younger people get sick and the more people that are infected, um, the more people get sick, they come into hospital. Our hospital can actually accommodate something like 0.2% of our population at any given time. And there you know, it actually is, in fact, a very lean system. And so it would not take very much in terms of people who are destined to recover to paralyze the health system and prevent care of other people who need care. Um, the final thing that I think is an evolving concern is we still don't know about people who've recovered from even mild to moderate infection and have persistent symptoms and whether or not they might actually have long-term health consequences. And some people are considered that, you know, the the possible long-term effects after even moderate or mild infection might actually really add up to a big problem in the coming years. And that's something that's still not determined. So to me, you're looking at some unknowns and you're looking at some certainties. And the certainty is if there's widespread um, infection rates in younger people, we will have problems with their healthcare system. And we will actually have this question of long-term problems for those individuals. I wanna, Can I just jump in on of that? Of course, yeah. Sorry, Ryan. Just to build on that, I mean, one of the, um, it's there's always a focus on mortality, right, on deaths. And, and I think that that is actually the wrong focus. We can't just keep chasing the number of deaths and trying to um, use that as the main focus. The, you know, like Dr. Sexinger mentioned, the healthcare system is one thing, the capacity of the healthcare system, but also these long haulers, the, this so-called long COVID, where it's typically younger patients, uh, 30 to 50, that are the ones that are affected by long-term effects, such as difficulty breathing, um, fatigue, headaches. And these are things that could affect their ability to function, uh, ability to ability to work. And this is an unknown time frame that these things are continuing to last for. And so to focus on, you know, just the quote unquote vulnerable patients and, and protecting those people from dying, there's, there's a whole separate piece of this puzzle that we're just not talking about and that we're just starting to learn more and more about as the months go on. I've got an email here from a family doc that I, I want to read at least a portion of it and, and get the three of you to respond. Uh, this is from Dr. Stephen Hitchin. Um, who says, uh, for context, I'm a family physician with no formal training in epidemiology or public health, but I, I feel like I have to comment. He says, I've been stewing about your segment with David Redmond for, for, for the better part of a week, and I, and I have to get my feelings off my chest. I appreciate that the retired lieutenant colonel has a wealth of experience, but uh, he, he says, but I question his qualifications to so confidently comment on the public health response to COVID-19. He says he's, he made several strong assertions like lockdowns have been a failure, yet there are research papers examining this showing a benefit with regards to transmission. Anecdotally, we see rapid improvements after measures are instituted. He says Alberta has been an excellent example between early December and early February of this year. I very much doubt you can explain a drop of about 1,900 new cases a day down to about 308 weeks related to the, quote, natural seasonal variation of influenza. His frequent references to influenza pose a problem inherently. I get it. He had to review one policy related to influenza 17 years ago. In addition to many other responsibilities, he's quick with numbers. He's able to name drop countries. But my understanding is still that Sweden's approach was far worse 
than countries that attempted to control spread. COVID-19 is not influenza. It has well-documented differences in, in, in transmissibility, morbidity, mortality. It's been stated over and over by people who specialize in virology, epidemiology, and public health. He's comparing apples to oranges. Dr. Hitchin says, if I had retired eight years ago, I would not be expected to be held in the same regard as experts dealing with the current crisis on a daily basis. He says, I appreciate your exploration of these issues, and I'm grateful that you have these three medical guests on this morning. That from Dr. Steve Hitchin. He's he's essentially summarizing, doctors, what the three of you have been saying. Um, Dr. Markland, I saw somewhat of a I hope I'm using the word correctly, but somewhat of a demure smile, a subtle smile as you were listening to that letter being read. Did anything in particular jump out at you from Dr. Hitchin? Uh the fact that it was not rehearsed, uh, I think his email summarized my exact sentiments. I, I don't have anything to add to that. That is a very well-written email, and it summarizes the points exactly. So the other two of you, uh, Dr. Saxony or Dr. Mathani, anything in particular you wanted to touch on? Um, just what I'm, oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right, I'll go in. We'll, we'll go in order. Um, so I'm, I'm in the middle. I, <laughs> I think that... Um, one thing that strikes me from that is the the notion of expertise and uh, the notion of lived experience. And one thing that has struck me again and again is that the public health response here has has been criticized from all corners. I think public health would be a miserable job, honestly, um, because everyone is standing around yelling at you and saying that you're not paying attention to the right things. When in fact, I actually think my public health colleagues are extremely attuned to all of the aspects of healthcare that are important and of population health and of economic health. And it seems to be often assumed that they're not paying attention to things when in fact, they really are trying to balance off essentially competing impossible options and trying to find a way through an extremely difficult situation. And so the, the kind of peanut gallery phenomenon, I think, is natural because everyone's lives have been extremely disrupted by this. And everyone has learned a lot, actually, because they've been intensively watching things unfold and they have their own ideas and their own gleanings that are important. But there has to be, I think, a little bit of framing that's important. When you think about people who've spent their entire professional life, say, in infection control or in virology or in public health, um, weighing these things with a great deal of depth for many, many years that, you know, we should actually start with the idea that they might actually know something about what they're doing. Um, and that sounds a little harsher than I intended, but it's actually true. I think, I think we really do have to recognize that varied viewpoints are important, but that there is a certain amount of expertise that also has to be taken into account. Dr. Mathani? Yeah, I, I would echo that. And I mean, in MLA Barnes's interview, he he even said, leave the science to the scientists. So so leave the science to the scientists, right? I, um, just to kind of echo and elaborate a little bit on the email that you just read. Uh, you know, even Premier Kenny has said, this is not influenza. So I, I don't know why people keep comparing this to uh, a much uh, less contagious um, and now much less deadly virus. It, this is not influenza. And then the other point that I wanted to um, add to was we keep coming back to Sweden. And for some reason, Sweden keeps uh, continuing to be an example of how things were done right by the people that are against lockdowns and against these stronger restrictions. Um, you know, if you look at the data for the second wave, uh, the second wave that we, all, that we all kind of experienced in late fall and early winter, Sweden did terribly. Um, their death per capita was 18th in the world. Um, so out of, you know, over 80 countries, they were 18th in the world for most deaths per capita and Canada was 48th. So we are faring much, much better 
um, than the example of Sweden that people keep bringing, keep tending to bring up here. Um, Sam, if you have it available, maybe you could just roll as B-roll some of the video. For, we're going to use this at some point to, to talk about some of these pushbacks and these, you know, they're calling these like freedom rallies and freedom marches. And everybody's talking about this video that was captured at Chinook Center uh, down in Calgary over the weekend. Doctors, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but um, these are the, uh, the these are you know some of these rally organizers. Sam, you can just drop the audio out of that. Um, that that's Archer Pavlovsky, which is he's basically just a, a homophobic jerk uh, masquerading as a pastor down in Calgary. But but he, so they've been organizing this. You see the police officer like hugging and shaking hands with the guys. And I mean, it's just obviously a lot of people are pissed off for a lot of reasons. Um, and doctors, I'm not going to get you to comment on, on, on that angle on the police angle i've got plenty to say on that myself um but these are dozens and dozens and dozens of people that gathered at the mall maskless uh walking around uh putting other people at risk uh oftentimes you know you, you take a look at what happened with the capital insurrection down in the united states um they're estimating closing in on 200 cases of, of coronavirus uh, these are police officers and security guards that contracted the coronavirus from demonstrators that were not wearing masks we're seeing more pushback a lack of compliance on restaurants people are demanding that that uh you know that that that, that options are reopened to them as we are in the midst of just getting a preliminary understanding of these new variants, which Dr. Saxinger, you've joined us in past to talk about just at a, at a human level. Uh, and I'll ask all three of you this in closing. How are you wrapping your minds around what we're seeing? In other words, a, a horizon that's quite concerning. And at the same time, society or significant portion of society demanding that we reopen. Dr. Markland, how do you reconcile the two? This is where I agree with Emily Barnes. I think people are considerate. I think people are kind. And I think what gets a lot of the news exposure are the specific people who use it to their own advantage to weaponize the issues. Uh, and it does generate a lot of media buzz. But in general, I think most people uh, take a deep breath and do listen to the experts. The only caveat, of course, to that is when you're dealing with something like uh, vaccinations or you're dealing with something like coronavirus, uh, this is a shared responsibility. Uh, and when one group of people are irresponsible, it tends to affect others exponentially. And that is the challenge with this. This is why it generates so much uh, feeling in everybody because Everyone's most people are trying to do the right thing, but it only takes a small group of people to wreck it for everyone else. But again, I want to come back to I believe and I've seen it. I've seen our Alberta, Alberta with the lockdowns control this disease and do it voluntarily. So I think in general, uh, we are all to be commended for fantastic work. Dr. Saxinger. I had a very flinchy reaction to that video. I was on call, so I hadn't seen it before. And I think that I feel bad for people who have been really just, you know, in the grind for the entire time and everyone in healthcare who's been in that same grind, who have not been doing those things, who have been doing everything as carefully as they can within their capabilities. And that's the reason that we do not have the case rates, for example, in the U.S., which are like tenfold higher than what we have. Um, so all these people doing the right thing have created this aura of safety that has emboldened some people 
who are kind of inhabiting an alternate information universe, honestly, like they're in a, they're in a space where the information that they're provided makes that the sensible thing to do. And I think that that suggests some really significant failures in, in how we provide information and how information is disseminated because it's wrong and it's dangerous. And I, I think that it becomes very frustrating when people have been so careful for so long to see a small group of people getting attention and getting momentum and, and doing it in a way that's endangering everyone, particularly during this very, very delicate time of variant versus vaccine. Now, I think we're gonna be able to negotiate our way through this, but we really do have to work hard on those factions because they are in fact, possibly the biggest, uh, I guess, roadblock that we have to a successful culmination of this phase of the pandemic. Dr. Mathani, we'll give you last word. Well, it's hard to follow that. <laughs> um, you know, I echo exactly what the, the two doctors said here. Um, you know, like Dr. Marklin said, I think a large, we know a large majority of Albertans have been doing the right thing. They've been staying home. They've been wearing masks. They've been, um, you know, limiting their contact with, with, with each other. The problem is that when a small group of people are not obeying the rules anymore and are, are, you know, protesting or, um, moving around tables in restaurants when they shouldn't be. The unfortunate consequence of that is that vulnerable people and people who are following the rules are going to be the ones that are suffering the consequences of this. They're the ones that are going to get sick. Um, they're the ones that are going to get the virus. And they're the ones that may end up in hospital, may end up dying. And so, um, you know, I know that this has been a long road. We're all tired, like we've all said before, but uh, we need to continue to to be good Albertans, to be good citizens to each other and continue to do the right thing, not only to protect ourselves, but more importantly, to protect the people around us. Doctors, uh, on behalf of our audience, we're so grateful that you've taken time to speak with us uh, today, including uh, in your off hours, uh, in your vacation, your downtime. The fact that you're here really means a lot as we continue to try to ensure that we have conversations that inform people, conversations that are important and allow us to to cut through all the smoke and mirrors and all the noise around subject matter like this so we can better equip ourselves to finally flatten this curve and beat this thing. Thank you for the work that the three of you are doing on the front lines, and thanks for being friends to Real Talk. We appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Pleasure. That's Dr. Darren Marklin, Dr. Lenora Saxinger, and Dr. Shazma Mathani. Make sure you share that interview. Of course, you can subscribe to our podcast. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, and we'll be pushing out highlights from that interview later in the day. Coming up in just a moment, Emily Bazelon will join us. Very much looking forward to this conversation. Wanted to remind you today that the team at Westworld Computers is ready to help you make a change on your computing front. If you need to fast forward your tech, but you don't have the biggest budget, to do it with you know you might love that new macbook pro or the new imac but maybe it's a little out of your league price wise at this moment well they have an entire lineup of refurbished and ready to go apple mac products including watches phones ipads you know if you're looking to get a tablet into the mix for your family maybe your young learner go see daryl and his team at westworld computers for more than 40 years family owned helping you find solutions 
Same deal, family owned at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. They're proud to have the best Jeep selection in the entire province of Alberta. 2021 is a huge year for the Jeep lineup from the fuel efficient compass to that new seven passenger Grand Cherokee. I'm driving the Grand Cherokee right now. Absolutely love it, especially in these winter conditions. And then of course, if you know Jeep, I don't have to tell you that the Grand Wagoneer coming out later this year will redefine what luxury SUVs need to look like. You can find the Jeep lineup, the entire lineup, well represented at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Well, let's look stateside on the heels of a second acquittal for former President Donald Trump. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying yesterday that Congress will establish an independent September 11th style commission to look into that deadly insurrection at the U.S. Capitol back on January 6th. Emily Bazelon is a lecturer in law at Yale Law School. She's also a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. She's the author of two national bestsellers, including Charged, the movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration. And she is the co-host of one of my personal favorite podcasts, The Slate podcast political gab fest thank you so much emily for joining us this morning and welcome to real talk sure thing glad to be here now of course you've talked uh you talk american politics all the time and you've along with the rest of the world have been paying keen attention uh to to the second impeachment trial of president donald trump i'm not sure if you were surprised or not to see him acquitted uh now that we have a couple of days that have passed you've, you've, you've been able to sort through it in your mind where are you at with how this all played out I mean, I'm not particularly surprised. I think that uh, former President Trump has strong backing among Republican voters and that base plays a huge role in Republican primaries. And so for that reason, it would have been surprising to see most Republican senators vote against him because they pay a political price. And we're already seeing that in votes to censure a couple Republican senators who did vote against him in states like Louisiana and North Carolina. So I think this is pretty much how you would expect the political incentives to play out for better or worse. What message does it send uh, to, to Republican voters? What message does it send to Americans? What message does it send about the future of the GOP, do you think? That's a great question. I mean, I think the the Republican Party has a real choice to make about whether to be to continue to be the party of former President Trump. He was an incredibly uh, dominant force and really took it over and changed it and remolded it in his image during his presidency. Now he's out of power. And so there could be a move to kind of reclaim it. And there are some conservative principles, which Trump never supported. And of course, he also has taken it in a more conspiracy mongering, um, fear based, uh, you know, direction. And so I think there are some Republicans who would really like to get the party back from him, you know, and the business community in the United States was really concerned about the assault on the U.S. Capitol. But I think when you look at the base and the way it's voting and the way it has taken in this whole set of events, their support for Trump has risen in every day that's passed since January 6th. And so that just creates a kind of political reality for Republican candidates that they have to grapple with. Yeah. And Emily, I guess a big part of this, or at least some of the discussion that we saw from pundits around this impeachment trial was was preventing Donald Trump from seeking the presidency again, preventing him from running again. Do you think that that's a, a realistic 
option? Can you see that playing out over the next couple of years, his his reintroduction into this uh, political landscape? You know, right now, he it's his decision to make. It looks like he would be far and away the candidate of choice for Republican primary voters. Whether he really wants to re-enter politics and play that role with all the work that entails, um, all the energy that it takes, I think it's just far too soon to know the answer. He may well try to figure out a way to just do something else with his life. It's not really clear that he enjoyed being president very much. The actual doing of the job was not something he seemed terribly devoted to all the time. So I think we just really don't know. You can see the preferences of the voters, but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, that Trump is going to give them what they appear to want. Emily, your, your colleagues uh, at The New York Times have, have been doing uh, incredible reporting on on some of the fallout here. And, and, and the more we learn uh, following January 6th, the more troubling it is to realize, uh, I mean, some of the injuries that were sustained by by police officers and some of the, some of the mental health injuries that that people are talking about. I'm taking a look here at this reporting officers injuries, including concussions show the scope of violence at Capitol riot. Does it, does it change the conversation? Uh, does it change your conversation? Or do you think in the United States, I mean, people that would continue to support Donald Trump, um, are there two camps? Is, is it those that supported Trump that could proudly wear their MAGA hats uh, up until and including January 5th? And then is it an entirely different camp that continues to support President Trump following attacks on law enforcement, following attacks on the Capitol. I mean, are there two separate camps that need to be acknowledged here? I don't really think so. I think that a lot of the people who continue to support Trump are the same people who supported him before. They are uh, receiving information from right-wing media and social media that makes them think that he's not to blame for the attacks on the Capitol. Maybe somebody else did it. There's a lot of um, excuses being made for his role. And I, you know, the what we've learned about the physical and mental suffering of the U.S. Capitol Police is really disturbing. They, We can see these videos now that they were sometimes all by themselves in particular parts of the Capitol as the mob was coming in. And whatever you want to think about the bad calls that their superiors clearly made to not better protect the Capitol, these cops are on the front lines and one would think they would deserve kind of universal support and sympathy. But I'm afraid that that is divisive too in the United States right now. And I don't think that outlets like Fox News are really playing up those stories in a way that would change their viewers' minds. Do you think that the 46th president, do you think that President Joe Biden can heal this country? I mean, you know, it's there, there, there's so much, you know, we recognize we can get so carried away with, with some of the language and some of the emotion of all of this. But when it comes to actual policy and when it comes to bringing people together and working with, with Democrats and Republicans, does this president have what it takes to get the country back on track? You know, the way that you're framing the question, which is totally fair, puts so much um, burden on President Biden, but also makes him it's as if he could this is if any one individual could do those things. So you have this fractured and divided country in which people don't agree on a common set of facts and are really uh, taking in different kinds of information. I'm not sure any American president any individual could bridge that divide right now. I think President Biden is pretty well positioned to try. And so far his approval ratings are in the high 50s, which in 
the United States right now is like pretty high. I'm not really sure it's possible in our divided um, politics right now for him to do much better than that. There's so many parts of the information ecosystem and the political system that are essentially stacked against any American president coming into office. And so this quest for unity, while, you know, I deeply share it as a citizen of the United States, the notion that you can just put it on this new president and expect things to take some huge jump in that direction, I'm pretty skeptical. Well, and and I totally I mean, I, I think that there's wisdom in your response there, because I think, you know, you look back and you'd say, you know, when when there was a transition from, I don't know, uh, you know, I mean, you know, you know, George Bush, uh, Bill Clinton and W and Obama and, and this sort of back and forth where the White House is changing hands. And people might say, you know, they're going to differ on on policy when it comes to, you know, how health care is funded or, diff, you know, on on corporate tax rates or whatever. But when you take a look now at, at where a lot of the 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 anger is rooted, it's it's not even necessarily in policy. Um, it's in it's in the understanding or the misunderstanding, or whatever you have, the strongly held belief that that media is lying, that there's a that there's an organized cabal, that there's corruption, that there's a swamp that needs to be drained. I mean, there's there's so much supercharged language and so much anger at the institution of government that it just feels like the entire game has changed now. I mean, to to sort of agree with what you just said, I don't even know on that front where President Biden would even begin. Right. I think those are huge challenges. We see them very clearly in the United States with our information ecosystem. They're also arising in some parts of Europe. Um, I think in Canada, you seem to have less to worry about in this regard, which is really a big advantage um, on the world stage right now. And this is, to me, one of the most important questions of our time is how to combat disinformation while still making lots and lots of room for free speech and the free exchange of ideas. And I don't think it's a question that we have unraveled yet. Emily, before we let you go, it's it's a, a, a bit of a hard swerve uh, with regards to subject matter. But but your book Charged is is really incredible. Um, and I encourage people to dig into it and, and, and find it. They can order it wherever they get good books. Uh, I wanted to paint this in the context of the transition of power. Um, five people, uh, five death row inmates were executed just shortly before uh, President Biden's inauguration. Thirteen executions uh, carried out since July, which my understanding is it, it broke kind of the norm, which was which was typically for executions to be put on pause when there was a presidential transition of power. You've done a lot of work uh, talking about incarceration, talking about judicial reform, including uh, talking about abolishing the death penalty in the United States. Where is that converse? I mean, I guess you probably have to go state by state um, culturally in this conversation. But where is that conversation at? Where do you perceive it to be at right now in the U.S.? Well, I mean, the death penalty is has less popular support now than it has had in a long time. And I think that reflects the um, decrease in crime that at least was true until this pandemic year. Now we're having, unfortunately, terribly unfortunately, a rise in homicide and shootings in a lot of American cities. And you often seen attitudes toward punishment fluctuate with the crime um, levels. So we'll have to sort of watch that. I think there is rising in awareness in America that the death penalty is often terribly unfair, that we have never figured out how to administer it with 100% certainty that we are actually executing what 
American um, judges sometimes call, quote, the worst of the worst. And there's just tremendous evidence of racism in the system, of the idea that in murders of white victims, um, both people of color and white defendants are punished more egregiously and that this especially hurts black defendants. So I hope that that awareness will, you know, be present in voters' minds and um, on the minds of judges as they continue to adjudicate these questions. But it's by no means a kind of closed set of um, issues in the United States. It, it just keeps going. Emily Bazelon is the author of the New York Times bestseller Charged. Uh, she's uh, a writer with the New York Times uh, magazine and, of course, co-host of the wildly popular Slate Political Gab Fest, of which I'm a huge fan. Emily, it's an honor to have you here on the show. Thank you for making time for us. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I encourage you to follow Emily on Twitter and make sure you subscribe to Political Gab Fest. They do a fantastic job over there. One of the very popular slate political podcasts. We're going to be getting to your comments uh, in just a moment on what you've been hearing through the show today. I recognize we've we've been moving at somewhat of a, a torrid clip today. Tech producer Samuel Brooks has has been just hammering away behind the scenes. How are you holding up, pal, on this Tuesday? You do, this is a, I'm coming up for air now. This is all right. A bit yeah. of a rude awakening after a long weekend. I say, well, I mean, it's like I'm. It's part of my. Oh man, my hair's not nice today. Uh, it's part of my job. I mean, I'm 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 used to it, and I, was, I knew that we were going to have a big show today, so I was uh, I was excited for it. It's just uh, it, it's you know it, it's one of those days where we don't get a beat in between interviews to like kind of digest it a little bit. It's going to be one of those shows where I think we're going to go off air and be like. Oh man, we we talked yeah. about that today we and got that to today lot. and that like we've and and we still have an interview left to go. So I we mean, still just, do. We yeah, have we is, have a reason for a, optimism. Reason for optimism coming up out of Calgary. We're going to talk to the CEO of of M Cloud Technology in just a moment. Wanted to remind you how grateful we are to have the support of partners like Eden Landscaping that have joined us on our journey. You know the temperature is going to start to rise and rise and rise and pretty soon when you're out for a walk you're going to see tulips and daffodils start to pop up and you're going to go you know maybe this is the year we should maximize our outdoor space maybe this is the year that we should do something to transform that front or backyard that it looks decent but it doesn't look great. Eden Landscaping for more than 20 years has been helping you realize your dreams and their clients include folks that are putting together planters and flower boxes, maybe hanging baskets, all the way through to the big gazebos and outdoor kitchens and beautiful retaining walls and campfire circles. And well, hey, your imagination can run wild along with theirs. They're ready to meet with you. They can talk over Zoom. They can check out your property over Google Earth. And before you know it, they'll be getting going. You can check out their work at landscapeedmonton.ca. You can find the link, of course, by following the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. That's also where you will find the team at Grand Dog Essential quality raw food as i've said there's no better endorsement than me just telling you this is what we feed our dogs this is what we feed our family members moses and monroe we first uh, were very impressed with grand dog essentials when we had a nutritional consultation with them one of our dogs moses his guts were off a little bit we had heard that raw food might be the solution. So the family-owned team at Grand Dog Essentials worked with us now. Every couple of weeks, they drop off the next box 
of quality raw food at our front door. They'll do it for you if you're in Calgary, Edmonton, or the Red Deer area. And make sure you use the promo code REALTALK to save 10% off your first-time order with Grand Dog Essentials. Sam, we blew through it at 9 o'clock because we had so much going on and we had guests in the bullpen. But why don't we take a quick look at what's making news today? Well, keep your eyes on Newfoundland. As of yesterday, uh, out there on the East Coast, 298 active cases tied to this B117 variant. This is that one that originated in the UK with more cases expected. Now, it may sound like a small number compared to other provinces, but keep in mind that since the pandemic began, like almost a year ago, Newfoundland's had a total of 704 cases. Total. So 298 of the new variants, a big deal. Uh, The chief medical officer of health there, Janice Fitzgerald, said you can never let your guard down. It doesn't matter how low our cases are. Other parts of the country, including Ontario and Alberta, loosening restrictions. Newfoundland entering into full lockdown. Schools closed. Businesses closed. People self-isolating. In-person voting for their provincial election on Saturday was canceled 12 hours before polls were to open. We did want to uh, draw your attention, if you haven't seen it already, to a demonstration at Calgary's Chinook Center Mall over the weekend. This is what people are talking about. Uh, In particular, the Calgary police being criticized after an officer is shown to essentially, well, I mean, the video speaks for itself. So here you go. Uh, This is Brad Kerrigan interacting with the police officer who leans in, gives him the bro handshake gives them a bit of a hug obviously who knows what they're talking about but they appear to be seeing eye to eye this police officer here uh not a great look for the calgary police service who had this to say by way of a statement uh as the video started making the rounds that video was shot by the way uh by a gal by the name of misty wind who posted it on social the calgary police service says hey listen there was this anti-mask protest that took place Calgary police officers attended the diversity resources team on scene to try to negotiate protesters, leaving them all peacefully in doing so. The officer in the video was successful in his peaceful negotiation. And at the end of it, a handshake was offered and accepted. Well, here's what people are saying on social media. Uh, And this is just just a few selections. This from Herrick Ethan. of course, tapping into that ad campaign by Alberta Health Services, COVID loves in the Calgary police uniform. How about this from Omar Reyes, an activist down in Calgary? The police officers from Calgary negotiated and shook hands with protesters who marched through Chinook Mall without masks. But when you're homeless and indigenous, you get kicked out of empty LRT stations in the cold, says Omar. I'm fucking infuriated. That's a story out of Edmonton, as a matter of fact. As you can see, Edmonton police officers literally throwing out uh, possessions that were donated to homeless citizens in the middle of a minus 35 cold snap. Uh, That's a story we're continuing to keep an eye on. And Sam, let's just get to that last tweet. That was one that I wanted to put on your radar as well. This from Andrew Savakovats, who says, so so per the provincial bill one, the UCP legislation, it's illegal to protest planetary destruction, but attend an indoor anti-mask rally and you get a handshake from the police. Did I get that right? That from Andrew Savakovats. 
And another story we're watching out of Red Deer, Alberta, the Ole Mill plant there, the slaughterhouse announcing yesterday evening they're temporarily ceasing operations due to a quickly growing COVID-19 outbreak. More than 300 cases have emanated from that location. One employee in his 30s already dying as a result. The union representing those workers at the slaughterhouse has been calling for a pause in operation for over a week. Uh, You can look to Stephanie Babich's good reporting on this in the Calgary Herald. The facility employs about 1,850 workers, which means that 20% of their workforce has now tested positive. Well, there's a lot of heaviness in the news these days to state the obvious right there's the pandemic and there's the 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 impact that that pandemic is having on the economy then there's the the global recession uh, as evidenced in energy prices and we know that that's been very difficult on energy producing jurisdictions including alberta so when there's a good news story Sometimes it can fly under the radar because because people don't tend to pay a lot of attention to good news for whatever reason. But this headline jumped off the page for us when we saw that a tech company plans to double its staff as it moves its headquarters to Calgary, Alberta. Russ McMeekin is the CEO of M Cloud Technologies, kind enough to join us on the show this morning. Welcome to Real Talk, Russ. Thanks, Ryan. Do, do you concur? Uh, this news cycle has been a little bit heavy. This is a story that, that I think <laughs> has given people some reason for optimism. They're happy sure to be. see they're happy to see some lights turn on on the office towers downtown. Absolutely. For three reasons. One, as you stated, the obvious, we're going to hire a lot of great people, continue to hire a lot of great people. Secondly, I think we need to change the perception of the production side of the industry. And Alberta is an excellent place globally to set that percep- to change that perception with technology. And thirdly, timing is perfect, right? So uh, ESG is a hot topic and uh, people want to adopt technology to improve the way they perform. So our timing couldn't be better. So I share with you that there is uh, good news in the in the mix. Russ, I, I have a cheat sheet in front of me. That's the only reason that I know that ESG <laughs> that ESG stands for environmental, social and governance performance. But but give us a sense of what M Cloud Technologies does. Yeah. So we focus on the decarbonizing side. So in oil and gas, the fact is from the time it go, leaves the dirt to combustion. So either power, as you probably saw today in the U.S., some serious power outages because they're not using reliable gas to produce power, but put that aside for a moment. So from ground to production, if you decarbonize, meaning no leaks, highly efficient processing, the intensity of carbon lost in the production process goes down and your ESG score improves. And why that matters, the capital markets like to invest in companies that are GSG or green friendly. And so there is a way to make the industry very efficient relative to its peers, relative to its historical performance. Our technology enables that by using artificial intelligence to micromanage the assets to ensure its optimal performance. Now you're working with huge brands. I mean, Bank of America, Suncor, Starbucks. Uh, to what do you attribute the company's success? 
So our technology was acquired and it was already validated by a major player. So our first acquisition was Bank of America was a co-investor and the Department of Energy was the technology validator. In AI, the Defense Department of the United States and Lockheed Martin was the early adopters of our technology. In oil and gas, uh, we use a lot of technology that came from the nuclear industry. There's probably not a single asset in the nuclear industry in the United States that isn't in our cloud or isn't in our uh, 3D digital models. So we have a lot of credibility by way of the acquisitions we have. So we're able to scale those with the big called Fortune 100s. Russ, Calgary's downtown vacancy rate right now, I'm looking at numbers from Avison Young, the, the commercial uh, realtor, uh, real estate agent, property manager, 27% office vacancy downtown Calgary. What's, what sort of what was the draw to Calgary to move your corporate headquarters? Uh, why Calgary? So proximity to the oil and gas industry, that was number one. So we're very fortuitous that you know rates are down and therefore we can get space very attract- on a very attractive basis. But proximity to the oil and gas industry, a very large critical mass, the third largest oil and gas critical mass on earth is Alberta. So by, by being in Calgary, we're very close to the customer. In artificial intelligence and cloud and tech, being close to the end user, cutting out you know inefficient time to market is very critical. So by being in Calgary, we're in the mix of things. And then the talent, we can hire people, engineers, scientists in this space uh, who understand this business very well. So uh, that's a key success factor. If they understand the problem we're trying to solve, then applying AI to the problem is very straightforward. If they don't, under, if they don't understand the problem, AI is just a tool in the toolbox that's relatively useless if you don't understand the problem you're solving. So Calgary is brilliant from proximity and it just ends up being cost effective because, uh, as you mentioned, occupancy is quite uh, quite attractive. Yeah, I mean, but you could have gone anywhere, right? I mean, you, you know, in this day and age, you could you could go to San Francisco, you could you could go to Melbourne. Yeah. Right? Well, we actually started in San Francisco, so we actually started on California Street in San Francisco. So we've been there, done that. I have, that's a whole other real talk story on its own. We can have, but uh, but no, we could have. We have a great operation in Perth. We have a, a, quite a nucleus in. Uh, in uh, Atlanta, Singapore, but the critical mass proximity we have in Alberta. And I'll tell you, uh, I've never seen such collaborative work with uh, people that invest Alberta. Uh, I've had a discussion with Premier Kinney myself. He's assigned the A team to our initiative for many reasons, right? If you can make Alberta perceived to be an ESG leader technologically and adopting it within its production, one, it will attract a lot of capital B, we're going to create a lot of growth worldwide and create a lot of jobs. So it's a win-win-win. I don't think that kind of dynamic would exist in any other geography we looked at. It's a, it's quite a unique situation at a perfect time. Yeah, well, and, and you're, I mean, you know, from from the premier's office and all the way down, you're gonna you're gonna have uh, you know power players eager to cooperate. Uh, you know, maybe at a time when, you know, if looking back 10 or 15 years, you know, when when when, you know, commercial space downtown may have been a bit more competitive, when the job market may have looked quite a bit drastically different, there may have been a different attitude or approach. Uh, in other words, it may have been a little bit more difficult to get a meeting with Alberta's premier as an example, whereas now they're going to be quite eager because I think that your company can stand as an example to other companies of what's possible and what the draw to Alberta can be. Well, staying true to the to your term of your or your show, real talk. Fifteen years ago, using a Texas term, it was all about drill, baby, drill, right? So no one cared about being efficient. Nobody cared about perception. So you're absolutely right. Our topic would have been totally off topic. 
Today, drilling more is just, well, you just saw the Keystone Pipeline. We're going to have that conversation about that. Uh, so we need to work on becoming more efficient, differentiating, and align with the time, right? And the world wants to see wants to see the industry being a lot more efficient, and we're at the center of it. Now, Alberta is keen to do it. So uh, as you mentioned, from the top all the way down. So there is no reason why we can't be the dominant player in the world in decarbonizing oil and gas assets. There's zero reason to not achieve that goal. Russ, it's going to capture a lot of people's attention that part of this story is that you're intending on, my understanding is anyway, doubling your workforce in Alberta. And I, and if yep. I'm reading the numbers correctly, you've got about 80 employees currently in Calgary and Edmonton. Does this look like, I mean, does this mean that you're looking to, to add 80 more skilled no, no, professionals to your team? Who are you looking for? You know, chemical engineers, you know, engineers, scientists, computer scientists, our finance group needs to grow. So we'll be adding more finance people, uh, you know, with infrastructure or public company. We're about to list in the U.S. and the NASDAQ. So you, there's a back office requirement. We'll do that from Alberta, but primarily engineers, technical people. Uh, and again, we're a cloud company, right? So when we win a contract and uh, we're, I was just on a review with our European president this morning, we're about to sign some big contracts in Europe and the Middle East. A lot of that configuration effort will be actually done in your town in Edmonton, actually our, our, our vice president of operations based in Edmonton and to configure these AI models around the world. He's the leader of it. So it will happen by definition in, in our own backyard in Alberta. Are you you're personally making a move right from from the states? 100%. Are you in the states right yeah. now? I'm currently in Phoenix, Arizona, actually Scottsdale, Arizona, but 100 percent. I'll be downtown Calgary and uh, I'll be there as quick as uh, COVID clears and I can get there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, wait, wait for the cold snap to pass. Wait for COVID to that clear too. and then you can get up here. What are you expecting atmosphere wise? I'm not talking about the weather, but what are you expecting atmosphere wise in Calgary? You've got a city that is accustomed to innovation, to making things happen. There's a certain spirit that I know Albertans celebrate. Absolutely. Um, I'm know. from Ontario, so I envy the Alberta, the Alberta spirit. Yeah. So, so what are you expecting yeah. to encounter in Calgary? Oh, exactly what you described, right? We want to be part of that mix, right? So uh, I tend to be, uh, hopefully you, you, you have detected, I'm a uh, customer-facing, front office-facing person. So I hope to be in that mix, to, to say the least. Good stuff. Well, Russ McMeekin, we, we appreciate you making time for us. I know it's a busy time. Your your, uh, your your staff have been great to deal with in coordinating this interview. And thank you for joining us on Real Talk. And you have a brilliant show. I really I really like your show. So. Well, thanks, thank Russ. You. I appreciate that. And we'll look forward to talking again. That's uh, Russ McMeekin uh, joining us from Scottsdale, Arizona. He's the CEO of MCloud Technologies Corporation. They use AI use artificial intelligence to measure and mitigate energy waste. What a cool story. If for no other reason that they're moving their HQ to Calgary and looking to hire approximately 80 skilled professionals. Um, just just probably a, a couple of uh, businesses uh, that are very, very similar. Uh, MCloud Technologies and RealTalk, uh, both in the midst of industry-wide layoffs, both announcing that they're hiring Sam. It's a very exciting time for both businesses. It was gonna, it was taking me a moment to see where the parallel is between that because yeah. last time I checked, we're not making AI technology around here. We're not making. I'd, I'd like to, I think, but I don't want to run the show with AI. I think, yeah, that would it, be well. It'd be bad for both of us. It would. Yeah, I, I don't know if that would be a very good show. Yeah, uh, this is maybe, maybe a good time for for me to to reiterate. If you're just tuning in this morning, or if you didn't hear out of the gates, uh, Relay Communications. That's us. That's the parent company of Real Talk. Is 
hiring. We've just posted this this morning at ryanjesperson.com slash team. We're looking for a chase producer. Uh, you can read all about what the job entails. Uh, we can we can kind of get into who might be a good fit here. You can find all of the details about us, uh, who we're looking for, and what the job looks like. Again, just check out ryanjesperson.com slash team and make sure you share that listing with anybody that you think might be a good fit. Uh, also on our website, you'll find our Get Real question of the week in partnership with Y Station. Every week we ask you, our audience members, to, to, to weigh in on an important topic. This week, we're talking about lockdowns and restrictions. Conversations last week with Lieutenant Colonel Retired Redmond, with MLA Drew Barnes. Conversations today with uh, Drs. Mithani, Saxinger, and Markland have us wondering, lockdowns and restrictions are becoming a public debate with developments of new COVID variants, some headlines on the political front. We want to know what activities you'd be comfortable with at this point and which activities you're going to avoid. And of course, through the week, we'll be reminding you, it takes just a couple of minutes to go on to ryanjesperson.com, click on question of the week right at the top of the page. And of course, it gives us some data to sift through. Now, we wanted to announce as well, uh, last night for the very first time, if you support us on Patreon, you know this. And again, for more details, just check out our website, ryanjesperson.com, right at the top of the page. Uh, many of you are uh, incredible, incredible supporters on a monthly basis via our Patreon. Well, the team at Y Station, which coordinates our question of the week, provide us with a top line report. It's pages and pages of curated data uh, boiled down to an easy to understand format. And there is our Patreon subscriber top line report. Now, we're giving you a little sneak peek of this. This is what it looks like. But if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you're going to want to check your email because yesterday for the first time, and we're going to do it every week now, we're going to be providing you with exclusive access to that Y Station Real Talk top line report. You're going to be able to see what hundreds of people have said, what they're telling us, how they feel about issues that matter. You'll get statistical data like you can't find anywhere else. And all of it very easy to read through and relatively easy to understand. It's insight like you won't get anywhere else. And it's just one way that we're saying thank you to our Patreon supporters. Really, really appreciate that. Why don't we take a quick look at what some of the answers looked like to last week's question of the week? You'll remember on the on the heels of the the GameStop controversy, on the heels of of, of this this Wall Street gaming reality. We talked to Andre Do about this. I mean, this was an absolutely wild story seeing GameStop stock go from basically way down here to way up there. Uh, a lot of people making a ton of money um, at the expense of hedge funds and not everybody feels sorry for the hedge funds, but there have been some really interesting implications. We asked you where you're at with all of this and we got some really interesting results. We're going to dig into them in more meaningful fashion, a deeper dive a little later on this week. But let's take a look at some of the trends that Y Station was able to pick up from what you told us. Get this. Now, while 61% and more than 800 of you answered these questions, by the way, a great sample size. While 61% of listeners are invested in the stock market, 51% believe the market is rigged. In other words, some of you that are involved in the stock market believe that it's rigged. The assumption is, I guess, that you believe that it's rigged to a certain degree in your favor. 
Let's take a look at another trend. This was one that was really interesting. 50% of listeners think investing in the stock exchange is essentially gambling. I might include myself in that to a certain degree, Sam, would you? I mean, the word gambling is is an interesting one to invoke. Because, I mean, I think you're right in that there's, you know, there's, if you're investing in the stock market, just hoping to make money on it, hoping to be in for the quick buck. Like that is gambling. Day trading, I think, is gambling. I think that there's a big difference between, you know, the long term investments of of the companies that you believe in, your 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 big sort of like managed portfolio funds, your index funds, the stuff that doesn't fluctuate very much, and trying to pick winners. Trying to pick winners is definitely gambling. So and, and, and you wonder if like referring to it as gambling, I think provides some insight into maybe how people approach it. You know, you talk to anybody that not anybody you talk to some people that will walk into a casino where conventional wisdom seems to be don't uh, gamble what you can't afford to lose. And you wonder if most people would approach sort of especially self-management on the stock market. People with the, you know, the I trade accounts, accounts where you're actually doing the buying and the selling or the buying and the holding as opposed to going through a managed fund. Uh, if that might impact how people approach it. Yeah, because I think that, you know, probably, you know, the the people that are doing sort of the self trading or, or might be like trying to bet and game the system a little bit. But I think the people that, you know, I think a lot of people invest in the stock market because it's slightly better than a savings account. You know, you get you get so much interest rate, you're you're. you're Money is somewhat fluid when you put it into a savings account. When you buy RRSPs, you get some tax rebates out of it. You get some incentives for it. And I think writ large, you're, you're gambling, you're betting that your money is going to get, you know, a slightly better return than it would just sitting in a savings account. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, we asked, uh, you know, how do you save for the future uh, as part of the question? And uh, 88% of respondents said bank accounts. 62%, as mentioned in that graphic earlier, said stocks. 61% through equity in your home, which is not a surprise. 30% GICs, 28% bonds. And it goes all the way down. It gets interesting. 8% of you are saving for the future by way of crypto, uh, Bitcoin, or other digital currency. 6% of you say you're putting cash under your mattress. <laughs> so that's some interesting insight there. And with regards to some of the comments that you shared with us, uh, here are ones that jumped out at us. When we asked you about your financial portfolio, you know, stocks and crypto and RSPs and everything. I mean, the whole gamut. Uh, one of you said, uh, frankly, I don't understand any of it. <laughs> Another said, why would I invest in a bond when the return is less than yearly inflation? Another said, I need to learn more about cryptocurrency before I'm comfortable investing. Another says, with regards to RSPs, I find the notion of this product completely obsolete, right? You've, you've got Canadians every February pouring thousands of dollars into their RSPs as a way to get a tax discount only for the Canadian government to be able to use those funds to invest and collect interest while they sit there. So some interesting insight there. If this has if you find that this what's your appetite and you'd really love to dig into top line reports like these, if you're the type of person that loves understanding 
And because you're here listening or watching uh, this show, I would suspect you are the type of person that's curious about what makes people tick. If you're always interested in insights into society around you, again, if you do support us on Patreon uh, by way of the link at the top of our website, you'll be receiving a copy of this top line report. Thanks to Y Station each and every week. And they've told us Y Station has told us to tell you they want to hear how they can improve on those top line reports. So if you have suggestions, they're always always open to them you can send it to us at talk at ryan or you can just leave a comment under the post on our patreon link the team at alta moving in storage is keeping an eye on the forecast and you know over the next few days it's going to get more and more pleasant which they know is going to prompt some of you to finally take the step to order one of those pod style containers they'll drop it off at your house and you can finally make the move you've been planning to make for a while whether it's getting the piano to a family that could use it whether it's decluttering the basement whether it's finding a long or short-term storage solution for something that's taken up too much space but you're not quite ready to say goodbye to it just yet alta moving and storage is proudly locally owned employing local people and they want to compete for your business you can find out more about what they're doing at altastorage.ca or just follow the link under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com that's also where you'll find the team from local waste we've told you that they love to talk trash you know just this past friday our edition of trash talk lit the room on fire one of you wrote in to say my wife heard me listening to trash talk without context And she told me that I need to stop listening to such angry podcasts. We wrote back and said, well, make sure she knows that it's all in good fun. This is an exercise in in blowing off a little steam. Local Waste is proud to present Trash Talk each and every week because it's their business to talk trash and to find solutions. Whether you're a small or a larger business, uh, whether you've been with one company for a long time or whether you're just starting out, their business is finding solutions for you. And you can find more about what they do at localwaste.ca. And we wrap the show today with a note of encouragement. The team at Kubi Energy is very proud to present positive reflections. At the beginning of each and every week, Kubi Energy is a Tesla certified solar installer. It means that they only use journeyman electricians or electrical apprentices to complete those installs. And they're very proud to handle the paperwork too. So whether you're looking for the bursary, that subsidy, that rebate, or maybe you don't even know what you qualify for, Kubi Energy has it all handled. So you don't have to. You can find the link to their website again at ryanjesperson.com. As mentioned, Kubi Energy, the proud presenter of Positive Reflections. Yeah, through the week, we keep a keen eye on the emails with positive reflections in the subject line. We know it's going to be something that makes us smile. We know it's something that's passed along from a Real Talk audience member, something that turned your day around, something that prompted you to smile, something that gave you hope. We want to hear your stories at talk at ryanjesperson.com. Like this one, we appreciate this from, and this is her name, not the one we've given her, crazy chick number two we need to know who crazy chick number one is but number two says you know we try to bring a little joy to our care home residents the ones that are living with cabin fever now everybody's healthy and happy at discovery place it's an assisted living facility in devon alberta but this damn cold has clipped their wings 
So here's our attempt at Bigfoot tracks. The Sasquatch tracks have picked up some steam online with tens of thousands of views, but we need real talkers help to make this viral. Now, we're asking people on Facebook to chime in on this. Our residents are really enjoying media attention, and they've been taking shifts to watch what develops here. Uh, Lori is her real name. She says, you know, we talk about current events every day in the salon. Real talk is the buzz in Devon, says Lori. Congratulations. Well, Lori, you've made us smile, and we appreciate it. And a big shout-out to all of the residents at Discovery Place Assisted Living in Devon. Good luck tracking down Bigfoot. Boy, did that make us smile. And this video, with apologies to everybody listening on the podcast, you're going to have to find us on YouTube because Barry Fearnley and the Fearnley clan are proud audience members of Real Talk. They passed this along from the goat barn. They said there's nothing like video of baby goats to get your week started right with some positive reflections. Look at these little guys. Sam, there's something about baby goats, isn't there? Not not kidding. There's I, there's something not kidding. I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't help yeah. myself. I there couldn't, we go. I couldn't help myself. A shout out to all of the producers, to the farmers, those of you involved in agriculture. We really appreciate everything you do and the fact that you tune into Real Talk while you're doing it. You can send us your positive reflections each and every week through the week again at talk at ryanjesperson.com and our thanks to the team at Kubi Energy. The rest of this week is going to be a busy one here on Real Talk. It's a short week, and we're back at it tomorrow morning at 8.30 Mountain Time, including an interview with author Irshad Manji. And circle your calendars for Friday at 9 o'clock as Semhar Tekest. We're going to be joined by Eric Doman and Andrew Parker as we celebrate Black History Month. All of that and more coming up on Real Talk. Make it a great Tuesday, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow morning.